Just to warn you all before I begin that I deleted uh, Twitter off my phone while I was on holiday. So if I say something like ridiculous, like that happened two weeks ago or something, it's because I've been living in a bunker under the ground for the last week or so. So let me know and we can always edit it out. Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. Welcome to the One Football Podcast. I'm Dan Burke and I'm joined this week by Lewis Ambrose. Hello. Joanna Bueno. Hi. And Padraig Whelan. Hello. So we've got plenty to get through on this episode and we'll start where else but with the Champions League final, which Bayern Munich of course won 1-0 against PSG to clinch their sixth European Cup. Uh, Lewis, I noticed you tweeted after the game that Bayern are the best team in the world at the moment. Are they the best team in the world? And if so, what makes them better than, let's say, Liverpool, for example? Um, they, they just don't stop winning. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's as simple as that. What... Uh, 30, their last 30 games 29 wins and a draw nobody can touch them uh, they, they're not one dimensional they they defend well they press brilliantly they can sting you on the break or at set pieces or create something out of nothing or break down a stubborn defence you think Leroy Sané is coming in now to replace Kingsley Coman um, who obviously scored the goal in the Champions League final but if you look at the 11 it's maybe one of the very few players that you maybe would point out and say he could be improved upon. Well, they've already signed somebody to do that. Uh, yeah, they just have pretty much blown everybody away as well. Those 30 games, like I say, they've won 29 and drawn one of their last 30 games. And there's not really been many late winners or scrappy wins or where they've ridden their luck. They've pretty much just torn through everybody they've come up against and... Um, yeah, I think right now or over the last six months or so, there's not really competition for who is the better team in the world. I've never seen somebody so deservedly win a Champions League, I don't <laughs> think. Joanna, do you agree with that? Best team in the world? Uh, I have to say yes. I think, well, they had a pretty uh, rough start. Well, not rough, but irregular start of the season. But since Hansi Flick took over, and especially after the break, I mean, you don't see them even sweat thinking that they're not going to win the game and you've seen of course uh, them play some tough matches uh the, the the german cup final or something like that but you don't ever in any moment of the game you think oh you know they're in danger they might lose it so they're very very consistent and they they grew along the season and i think this is Part of what makes a winning team is, you know, improving throughout the season. So they've reached the Champions League final in their prime. Patrick, I said a couple of weeks ago on the podcast that uh, I wondered whether Bayern would uh, sort of come unstuck at the, the very elite level in the Champions League, you know, having sort of bossed the Bundesliga for a while. I wondered if the, if the step up in quality would, would catch them out. Do you know, do you think I was uh, stupid to say that at the time or did I have, did I have a point? Well, looking at it now, you may have been Dan, but I would never use the word stupid for your concern. But yeah, it was, it's like Lewis said, it was they're probably up there with the most deserving like team that ever won it. Um, when the Champions League came back and we knew about the knockout thing, I think quite a lot of people did fancy them to go on and win it, just because of how they'd played in the Champions League before that, how they'd played this year, how they've been pretty much, like the guys said, since Hansi Flick took over. So... Yeah, the the most deserving winners, I would agree. Uh, PSG maybe a little hard done by in the night. I mean, they, they I don't think they played terribly, but yeah, I think Bayern and the game and over the course of the season, no complaints that mm. they're the ones who've won it. 
Well, we spoke earlier in the season about where Hansi Flick ranked among the top coaches in the world. He's won a treble in less than one full season as Bayern's head coach. Have we got a special talent on our hands here, Lewis? Yeah, I think I think the context as well. So you can say he's won a treble. Obviously, um, obviously Pep Guardiola won God knows how many trophies in his first season at Barcelona. Um, which I think Zinedine Zidane came in and won the, the Champions League in his first bit season as Real Madrid coach as well. But the big difference here that I personally would, would point to is how bad Bayern Munich were under Niko Kovac. Mm. Um, and that wasn't a blip at the start of the season. This was when you watch the Bundesliga every week, Bayern Munich were lucky, uh, say lucky, but they have, the, they have this squad that's just so good, so much better than anyone else in Germany. Um, and they should be winning the league. Uh, something of a canter. And last season, they won the double, but they didn't play anything like a double-winning team. It was by far the worst that they played uh, since they won the treble for the first time seven years ago. Uh, and this season started pretty much the same way, um, only they had a little bit less luck. They were getting results that they deserved. They were fourth in the table when Niko Kovac was sacked. They were... Yeah, I mean, they just weren't playing well. They were wide open on the break. They weren't playing with any kind of energy with the ball. They weren't. They, it looked like there was no plan to actually break teams down. They were just struggling. Pretty much every game they looked like, yeah, they could drop points today. And that's completely disappeared pretty much overnight under Hansi Flick <laughs> with all of the exact same players. I think... We, we like to talk about players and, you know, people like to talk about players being the, the crucial. And obviously you can't win if you've got terrible players. Mm. Um, but he's got the exact same players and they look like a complete different team. If you put Hansi Flick's Bayern up against Niko Kovac's Bayern, I think they'd win 7 or 8-0. <laughs> um, he deserves so, so much credit. And I think it's probably quite worrying for everybody else in European football to think this is just the beginning for him. So what are the big changes you think he made? Was it a case of the players sort of respecting him a bit more in the, the, the respect of Kovac? Is it as simple as he sort of kept his tactics a bit simple and played people in the right positions? He he brought Thomas Muller back in from the cold, mm. who Niko Kovac had sort of decided wasn't up to it anymore. And Thomas Muller went and set a new Bundesliga season record for assists yeah. in a season. Um I think what you when you watch Bayern at the beginning of the season, they'd win games if Lewandowski scored enough goals. Uh, now that you, you can't try and I mean you can't mark Lewandowski out of a game anyway. But even if you could, it's pointless because you've got Alfonso Davies and Joshua Kimmich and Thiago uh, Thiago Alcantara and Serge Gnabry and Thomas Muller all providing incredible threats. Um, Kimmich is I think pretty much every position they've got one of the top few players in the world you look at Kimmich who is in two positions one of the best players in the world Thiago in midfield Gnabry has taken a massive leap in his performances over the past few years uh, Alfonso Davies has come out of nowhere as possibly even the best left back in world football now um, but again these players these are all the same players under um, under Niko Kovac there's a plan in possession you see the the final the other day and how Michael Cox wrote about the Athletic. There's sort of two different approaches on the wings where mm. Kimmich would come inside and Nabry would stay wide on the right and Davies would overlap on the left. There's just so much variation. Whereas a, a Kovac team looked like there was no creation, no imagination to it. Um, and I think Flick has 
he's talked a little bit about really instilling teamwork and pride and effort and I think that's a big part of it as well but yeah there's it's scary to watch because you don't really see one thing that they're bad at or or a weakness that's there yeah Manuel Neuer was scary to watch in the Champions League, I thought, particularly in the final. Joanna, do you think the, the signing of Alexander Newell has kind of motivated him and given him a bit of a, a kick up the backside to, to get back to what is best? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's been a long time since we've seen a, such a top performance by Neuer. I mean, not that he's played bad because it, this mm. never happens, but, you know, he wasn't the old Neuer. Since, I think since he came on from that uh, injury that took him out of most of the season a couple of years ago, he was not the same guy and uh maybe this was the 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 motivational lip that he was missing and i have to say that this was probably the best performance i've seen of neuer ever or maybe top three best performances he was amazing yeah he yeah. saved what two or three of certain goals with his feet <laughs> the way that he closes his his legs when he comes out of the goal is just I've never seen someone do it so so well. Yeah, you don't really see him sort of rushing out of his goal as much anymore, I don't think, Neuer. He seems to have got the kind of balance between, you know, coming all the way out and just being in the right place to kind of anticipate things. And yeah, like you say, he made some incredible saves, didn't he? Um, of course, a massive moment for Kingsley Coleman. We mentioned him earlier. He scored the winning goal in the final. Do you think that came at the perfect time for him, Padre, considering he's going to be competing with Leroy Sané next season? I don't think like that will be enough to save him, to be honest. Um I think that's Sane's position and he'll take it off him quite easily, like a great moment or whatever for Coman, not that I'm too delighted for him, but um, <laughs> I, I just think he's he's the one that fits out quite easily, even like for all that we've been praising Bayern and they deserve it, but there is games like you've watched like the, throughout like 2020 and I saw him at times and just thought he just still makes the wrong decision and it, a lot of the time it comes in games where they're three four five nil up like the way they have been steamrolling teams but you still you do see it with Coman where I mean they could be even further ahead and I still think his decision making uh, really could improve quite a bit for all the, the talent that he does have compared to Zani who's as you'll know Dan just a, a finished article I mean it'll be interesting to see how he deals maybe coming off a, a long-term injury. They yeah. might ease him in, maybe Coman will get, get a bit more time in the team, but I think there's there's no doubt who the, who the better player out of the two of them is. Mm. Yeah, I think that injury that injury could be key for for, for, for Sané, because Coman, you know, he's injury problems as well, but Sané, mm -hmm. I think it'll be interesting to see where he sort of picks up where he lefts off next season. I have to add something there. Uh, I think, of course, that Coman is not as talented as um, Sané or Gnabry, but he does. He's a very versatile player, and he plays both sides. So he's a great option for filling in for whoever is is injured or unavailable, and he can play in both sides of the attack. Yeah, very true. Yeah, yeah. I think he's, he's still got a future there, definitely. Uh, so what's the next step for Bayern now, do you think, Lewis? The, the winning the Bundesliga comfortably pretty much every season, the, the champions of Europe. Are there any worlds left for them to conquer? Uh, do it again. <laughs> um, well, this is this is one of these things with Bayern. That it's, and I guess Juventus are in the same boat now and improved PSG as well. Uh, it, it, every season's a failure unless you win the treble, which is just absurd. Mm. Um, but the the every club wants to win the treble every season, I guess. Um but they go into a season to win the treble and when they win the double, it's like, yeah, well, that was supposed to happen. <laughs> um, 
the only way to sort of have a really great, a truly great season is to win the treble, um, which is, it, it just sounds completely ridiculous. <laughs> um, but that's the, that's the state of play in the Bundesliga in, in France and in Italy as well. The, the, the clubs that win the league are just so dominant. So yeah, I, I mean, what what more can they do? The uh, w- without a European Super League or something like that existing, there's nothing else left. Maybe it's time for the Bundesliga to have its own Carabao Cup, and then Bayern can <laughs> aim for the quadruple instead. Let's go for the quadruple. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm not sure many Bundesliga clubs would fancy another competition that Bayern Munich can win every single year. <laughs> I doubt that as well, yeah. Uh, well, PSG haven't conquered all of the worlds yet. They certainly haven't conquered Europe, but they moved a huge step closer this season. Podrick, do you think they can consider themselves truly part of Europe's elite now? I think so, yeah. I mean, if they've, they've reached the final now and they've got the money to spend that they do to make the team even better and maybe go one further next season on top of the like just ridiculous talent that they already have in the team, I think, yeah, they definitely can consider themselves part of that. This this should probably be their time now to kick on, uh, whether it's, you know, with Tuchel or without him. Don't really know. You've seen a few different reports, like, mm. from France last few days. But, I mean, whether it is him, whether it's not him, they'll find someone, I'm sure, even if they decide not to. That squad's just so talented, it's going to get even better. Um, yeah, I think they should now, they should be looking at, being that kind of perennial semi-finalists, kind of at least if they get knocked out before that, they like as has often been the case for them in the past. Despite having all that they do have available, then they'll probably look at that as serious failure because they've came this close, they've tasted it, and I'm sure they'll be desperate to yeah go one better now. It's a weird one because they've had players for you know good players for quite a long time. Looking back to the like Zlatan Ibrahimovic times and stuff, but perhaps they got a little bit lucky with the the draw this season. They got a little bit favourable um, ties for them. I don't know really, but sure yeah. promoting bailing them out. Well, yeah, I mean that was pretty uh, stark at the end, wasn't it? When they were sort of on the break trying to get the equalising goal and Chupu Moting was leading the line. <laughs> it's like for all the... With Mauro Icardi sitting on yeah, the bench. for all the quality they've got, they've still got a bit, bit of a blind spot there, haven't they? Um, when we talk about PSG, it feels like we always have to talk about Neymar, Joanna. What did you make of his performance in the final? Uh, I have to say I expected a bit more, especially compared to what he had played in the semi-final and the quarter-finals and even before the break against Borussia Dortmund. Uh, he did a, it was by far his best season by PSG also because it didn't have as many injuries to mm. stop him. And I think also because he was way more focused than he was the last two seasons. And I think that after the last summer where he, he pretty much openly said he wanted to leave and he made a mistake going to PSG. He didn't say it with all of these words, but that's what he showed. So he needed to, he didn't leave. Uh, he wanted to go back to Barcelona and, you know, they, they filled his place with Griezmann. So he ne- he needed to prove to PSG that he was up to the task. He was going to perform and going to focus on the game and going to try to be the leader that the PSG hired him for, be the, that one exceptional player that they felt they were missing. And I have to say that uh, even though personally I don't really enjoy Neymar, although he is a wonderful player, no doubt about that. But this year, I think he left the off-pitch topics off the pitch. So he focused a lot more. 
But in the final, uh, of course, it was a you know a great match against Bayern. It's a tough match, and Bayern has really good defensive players as well. I think the first half he he delivered what was promised or expected, but in the second half, uh, PSG as a, as a as a team and especially Neymar, you know, they could have done better. They could have worked harder. I think he was missing that one final touch. He was maybe a bit tired or emotionally exhausted. But the final wasn't his best performance. But yeah, Neymar is a way is a completely different player, or was this season a completely different player than the last two seasons? Yeah. That's no doubt about that. What do you think was going through his mind at the end of the game? Then the camera kept showing him sort of staring into space, looking totally crestfallen. Do you think he's he's dreaming of Barcelona still? No, I, th- I think it's at one point, of course, it was he had a great expectation towards this match. Like this is what he was hired for. Mm. This is what Paris Saint-Germain played to, paid 220 million euros for. And this has been on his shoulder for two years, two whole seasons. So it was partially the disappointment and the, the, the personal disappointment of not being able to fully deliver what he had promised. And I think also it was part of maybe his act, because I do think he's an actor. Well, we all know that he's an actor (laughs) when he's rolling around in the pitch. But I think it was partly a bit of his uh, actor coming in and saying that, you know, he's a humble guy that just wanted to provide his team and his fans with the best and he couldn't. So I have my doubts about the true feelings that were going on there. But yeah, part of it's definitely was the the weight of his shoulders being lift off because the match was over but not completely because he hadn't really fulfilled the 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 final trophy yeah speaking of true feelings anyone else find it weird how long David Alaba spent consoling Neymar at the final whistle it's like he's just won the Champions League and instead of running off celebrating with the teammates he's like stood like wiping Neymar's tears away for about five minutes it felt like just a lovely man is that what it is yeah I don't know, I guess so. <laughs> if, if if I was a losing finalist, I think I'd just be straight off down the tunnel. I wouldn't even yeah. stick around, yeah. yeah the I, one that I, always annoyed me with that was, remember when Henri robbed Ireland from getting to the World <laughs> Cup and he sat down next to Richard Dunn Richard for Dunn. like five minutes. <laughs> not not such like a he, lovely man. It was like if he sat down next to me knowing what he's done, I don't think I would have been able to, to restrain myself like <laughs> Big Richard did. I think Alaba tried to console Neymar and then when he saw that Neymar would not raise his head and would not stop crying, he couldn't really leave in the middle yeah. of it. <laughs> so yeah. he felt a bit trapped. <laughs> Another thing I thought weird was in, in both the Champions League and the uh, Europa League finals, the way they made the losing finalists walk through like a guard of honour of the winning team to collect their loser's medal. It just felt really cruel like and psychologically damaging. Like If you were in that guard of honour, you'd definitely be clapping sarcastically or something, wouldn't you? Yeah, I- <laughs> Like you said, you just want to be out of that entire situation yeah. as quickly as possible. I don't even know why they give losers medals out, to be honest. I think Neymar just chucked his away straight away, didn't he? Pretty yeah. Well, yeah. we see that in football a lot, especially well in this you know uh, team sports where the second place is the losing place instead of the bronze medal yeah. that you win, that they just remove the, the silver medal right after they get it. Yeah. Is that or if you're these- the... Is that one of these ridiculous, like modern football kind of things taking off, like instantly taking the medal off? It's like no one wants to be seen with it in case someone tweets it and is like, "Oh, look at this mentality wearing a loser's medal." Yeah. Oh, did you see the the assistant referees getting all the stick for? They put up the photos of them like kissing their medals, and they were getting 
quite a lot of abuse for. Wait, they get a medal. Yeah, yeah, they get like the, <laughs> pretty incorrect. much the same the same medal as like the Bayern players get, but the they were getting a lot of stick decisions. off people, and it was like even, even it's the still the highlight for them. Even the VAR gets a medal, right? Really? <laughs> I think so. I think I saw the the VAR referees walking up the stage. <laughs> wow, the game has gone. Nice shit. Oh, horrible. Horrible. Uh, one player who really impressed me in the match was Ander Herrera. Uh, Padraig, is it fair to say that he, he almost kind of fell apart for PSG when he came off in the second half? Yeah, kind of. I thought like him and I think Paredes come off about maybe five, six minutes before Herrera as mm. well. And yeah, it just kind of felt like Tuchel making changes for the sake of it. Fair enough, like to bring Verratti on, no problem with that. But he, he brought on Draxler, I think, for Herrera, which just seemed... Seemed like a change. I said it to to one of the guys in the office after. Yeah, it felt like do you know when you're playing FIFA and you're like chasing a goal and you decide <laughs> you just make changes just for the sake of it. There's no real like. Well, I've got these guys on the bench. I, I might as well throw them in. It, honestly, it felt like Tuchel was kind of doing that, and he'd brought on like Korzawa and then Shupemoting, and like we'd kind of said earlier with a Cardi sitting on the bench. Yeah, I felt like his substitutions all night were a bit weird, especially the, the way Herrera and Paredes had played. He felt like they were maybe capable of making something happen late. And then, obviously, that one that Chupamotin kind of swings his leg at at the end as well. Mm. You, part of you does think if Mauro Icardi's like in the box at the end of that game, he's he probably... like it's. You can't just say he definitely would have found the net, but the kind of player he is anywhere in and around the box, you might have fancied him to, to get on the end yeah, of that you one. Think so, more chance, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. Strange. Where do you think this leaves Thomas Tuchel and Lewis? Will the PSG hierarchy be encouraged by the fact he got them to the final, or is he now on the second of his three strikes, basically? I mean, they've not even reached a semi final since, is it 95? Long mm. before. Um, the hierarchy that's in place there took over, uh, so I don't. I don't think they can complain. It's also not like Podrick said earlier; they weren't brilliant. Uh, they weren't um, terrible, sorry, um, and they really weren't. Um, when we're talking about Manuel Neuer having a really good final, then nobody can criticise PSG. I don't think really. Um, yeah, Neymar and Mbappe, Marquinhos all had really good chances or decent chances, um, and it's not. Not exactly like Bayern had any like real big clear cut sitters or anything, and we could really easily be sitting here talking about how PSG have just won their first Champions League. Mm. So I think Tuchel's fine. Um, I think they'll be very happy with the with the season, with the performances in the Champions League, especially coming from behind after one leg against Dortmund, the the late sort of comeback against Atalanta. But I think people look at the names Atalanta and Leipzig and think, ah, oh, well, who did they beat? But Atalanta scored the most goals in Europe this year, um, set by and maybe by the end of the season. Uh, Leipzig, well, they got all the way to, to the semi-final of the Champions League as well. They knocked out Atletico Madrid, which Liverpool couldn't do. Um, so I think you can only be encouraged, but at the same time, he's set the bar now. Podrick said earlier as well about now they'll be expecting to be sort of perennial semi-finalists. Um yeah, there's no getting away from that. So next year, if they're out in the quarterfinals again, then there's definitely going to be questions asked. Yeah, it's not like they got knocked out by Leon or anything like that, is it? <laughs> I didn't want to bring it up. Then. <laughs> <laughs> Even I was hoping to get through a whole podcast without mentioning that, but yeah, 
couldn't manage it. <laughs> um, I saw someone on Twitter saying after the game, and I had a, a brief uh, look at Twitter, that, that Bayern were the lesser of two evils in this final, you know, referring to the Qatari ownership of PSG and all that kind of thing. Is it just me who thinks we need to stop applying these like hero and villain narratives to elite-level football? It's all a bit grubby, isn't it? Let's be honest. I, I think... I think it can be really hard to separate clubs from their owners or their sponsors. Um, and obviously we know what what uh, PSG have in that regard. Uh, Bayern have close ties with Qatar as well, uh, even after consulting the German government and being told, yeah, you probably shouldn't do this. Um, mm. They still went ahead and, and done it anyway. Uh, yeah, I think there's some sort of responsibility to scrutinise that sort of so-called soft power. Um, and especially when clubs paint themselves in such a light PR wise it's like you know doing stuff for the community and stuff like that but then they're they're so happy to stand alongside or or be financed by regimes that deny people basic human rights um but I also think it's a little bit to each their own with this situation I think if people want to watch football and not care and not talk about that then fine but if people want to talk about it, then I think it is something that should probably be discussed as well. But it shouldn't be thrown like it shouldn't be like completely thrown out because it's just incredibly relevant. I just think it's interesting where people draw the line with these kind of things. Like I've been to Doha Airport. Uh, well, last time I was there, anyway. Bayern Munich have an official fan shop in Doha Airport, but PSG don't, as far as I know. So, like, there's there's just all 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 of this kind of stuff involved. I just think it's a bit silly to sort of start saying things like the lesser of two evils, personally. But, I think but, all big companies and all big teams have, you know, uh, glass roof, you know, something that they're not really, well, we're not really proud that they have or something like yeah. that. But football, on the other hand, is a, is a sport where it's, uh, it's, it's, it's possible for the underdog to win, for the big, t for the small team, for the, the, the worst team. You know, we've seen Leicester win the Premier League uh, and we've seen Atalanta reach uh, almost a, se a semi-final in the Champions League. So it's a sport where the underdog can succeed. So there's always going to be this uh, support for the underdog and this disgust for the big teams, for the, the teams that are full of money. And it, it kind of brings a little bit of excitement to that as well. Yeah, agreed. And if we are going to talk about underdogs, let's talk about Julian Lopetegui, who bounced back from being sacked by Spain and Real Madrid to guide Sevilla to the Europa League on Friday. How impressed have you been with the job he's done there, Lewis? Yeah, I think it's been really impressive. I think he became a little bit of a, a joke or a, a meme, a laughing stock, the way that he, yeah. the way that everything happened at, at Real Madrid, but also the, the how it cost him the leading Spain into the World Cup just before. Um, than to lose the Real Madrid job so quickly. But I think every yeah, everybody who laughed at that or criticised that has probably got a little bit of um, humble pie now because, I mean, he's done a great job. He's got Sevilla back into the Champions League, won the Europa League all in his first season. You can't really ask for much more than that. Mm. I have to say that I think his tears at the end of the match were way more real than Neymar's. <laughs> You yeah. don't think Neymar was upset at losing a Champions League no, final? No, no, I think he was. I think he was. But I think uh, that part of it might not have been completely true. And uh, Lopetegui's tears were way more uh, valid. Well, true, I think. More real yeah. from the heart. Neymar always knows that the camera's on him, doesn't he? That's the difference. Yeah. And you can always, like, I think tears of joy are almost a bit more authentic than sort of when people cry when they've lost a game of football. Get over it. 
<laughs> delete, Twitter, delete Twitter from your phone, that would be my advice. <laughs> um, there's also uh, Luke de Jong, who scored twice in the final Podrig. Is that really the same Luke de Jong who used to amble around to doing not very much in a Newcastle shirt a few years ago? I believe it's the very same, Dan, yeah. <laughs> and it, I think it's, it's the same, actually, de Jong, that he's took a lot of stick like all season in Spain as well. I think from like Sevilla fans and the media and stuff in Spain seems like he's had a really hard time uh, there all season. Like Lopetegui's kind of stuck with him and stuck with him and played him and his goal return, I think he had eight goals this season, like in all competitions going into the final. So not a not a great return if you're a centre forward in Sevilla have had some really good ones there over maybe the past decade, fifteen years and he's not really lived up to that. But then I mean fair play to him, fair play to Lopetegui, you know he's stuck with him showed faith in him the whole time. He's never really kind of dropped him for a long period of time and then he keeps faith in him and he repays him in the final, you know, two absolutely brilliant headers. So Yeah. But yeah, hard to believe it is it's the same. same but there's been a few bad ones at Newcastle. <laughs> That's that, true. Yeah, yeah. For well, the Sevilla fan, he's the man of the season because he scored against Betis, who is their biggest rival. And he scored the winning goal in the semi-final and then two goals in the final. He's the vet, the man of the season. <laughs> Which was your favourite header, Joanna, of his? Yeah, I think the first one was perfect. Yeah. It was really like the, the right header with the right angle. Of course, he's a... He's an incredible header, but the first header was amazing. Mm. And of course, Diego Carlos scored a, a very good goal. Well, has it been crediting to him that goal, that overhead kick, or has it gone down as an own goal now? Do we know? I think UEFA still had it down as uh, his goal for quite a long time after the game. It, sh- it can't be, surely. Yeah, it was going I mean, wide, wasn't it? It looks yeah. like it's gone wide. Yeah. yeah. But he seems to have been in the thick of it in every match lately. He gave away a penalty in the final and then scored what proved to be the winning goal. Um, Joanna, a lot of big clubs seem to be looking at Carlos this summer. Do you rate him? I think that he's very irregular. Like He plays really good matches and then at some point he does some really... He messes up the whole match. I mean, he would be the villain if he had done the penalty and didn't score the winning goal. Mm. He would be the villain in the final. So he still needs to mature a bit, I think think that he can he can be better than that I think but maybe a, a transfer to a different club to a different uh, league might bring the best in him do, do, you, do you have an idea where he might fit in well um, I'm not really sure I think he, he fits well in in the Spanish league mm. but you know from from Sevilla in Spain where can you go I mean Atletico Real Madrid Barcelona right and yeah. he's not Real Madrid Barcelona type and Atletico has already a very well-established defense so uh, I would guess maybe a medium to smaller team in England could be a good choice okay Manchester City then <laughs> <laughs> They have been linked with him, actually, but yeah, I don't know an awful lot about him apart from what I've seen in the Europa League. Um, it was a brilliant final, Podrig. It ended quite disappointingly for Inter. Um, do you reckon Antonio Conte and Ever Benega had a fight in the car park after the game? Well, as far as I'm aware, that Ever Benega's still alive, so I'm going <laughs> to say no then, because if those two... He's a brave man having it out with Conte, because if those two did have a, a set to... Uh, my money would definitely be on the, the, the man in the dugout. <laughs> Is it true that he was asking him whether his hair was real or something like that? Yeah, I saw it, but I think there was a lot of like lip reading and like Spanish and Italian kind of like lip reading, but nothing, I think, uh, kind of confirmed. I think it was one of those funny stories that people wanted it to be. Right, to be okay. true more than that, that it was actually true that that's what he said. But oh, I think okay. he definitely did offer to, 
to have him out over it, though, yeah. So what's the situation with Conte in the aftermath of this defeat? He, you know, he feels like a resignation waiting to happen. I think I heard earlier that there's some talks happening with the Inter owner today about his future. Yeah, by the time people listen, maybe they'll know more. But at the moment, I think the, they're having a meeting. Him and the, the president, Stephen Zang, are having a meeting Tuesday afternoon in Milan. And it's basically, it'll probably all become quite clear after that what he's going to do. Like To be honest, I think he'd do... It would be absolutely crazy to leave. Um, he kind of just he seems to just create these small battles, and it's so frustrating when you know, and everybody obviously knows what a good coach that he is. That he he seems to get involved in these things. Like it happened his first time, well, his only time round at UV did it when he was like the Italian coach as well. He tried to create like this siege mentality where it was kind of just made it up that the. Mm. The world is out to get us, and nobody was really. And even now, it's it's all pretty much over. He feels like the team haven't been protected from like the media and stuff. But I don't really know what he wants there. If he wants the the president to be coming out on a regular basis, speaking publicly, if he wants his sporting directors to be coming out, but he, he can't say like he's not had trust placed in him by the club. You know, they they broke their transfer record twice last summer to to kind of give him a squad. The squad that he wanted, so he can't. If it's all over, these this perceived slight that we haven't been protected and we've been kind of fed to the wolves in the media, then if he's going to leave over that, I think it's a very foolish decision because that team have got more than got what it takes to to win Serie A next mm-hmm. season. Just chill out, Antonio. Yeah, keep your hair on. Down. Don't tell him I said that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so with European club football in the men's game finally done for the season what do we make of the one-legged knockout tournament in the end is this the way forward Lewis or should it never darken our door again um, I like watching it I don't I, I think as a, as, a, as a fan if your club's involved then it's quite it's quite sad that um, you know if you can't attend games and stuff the, the home leg of the quarterfinal the semi-final um, I feel like it's a big part of your sort of journey to towards a European trophy or, or a final. Um, so I'd I'd be a bit worried about that sort of disappearing, and then you've got neutral grounds for for all of the last three or four rounds. I, I do like the one-off game though because mm. I just anything that helps us get a few more unpredictable results. Um, and yeah, sort of the underdog winning. It, We've got the same collection of clubs that tend to win these competitions, and that would certainly throw a spanner in the works now and then. Um, I think we've all watched, enjoyed watching Atalanta and uh, this season, or Ajax get into the semi-final the year before. So, yeah, a few more runs like that wouldn't wouldn't be bad. But I don't know if one leg's the way to do it, or certainly not in a neutral venue every time. Yeah. I personally think if they want to make the Champions League better, they should scrap the group stage completely and just have two lock- two-legged knockout ties throughout all the way to the final. Yeah, 32 teams, open yeah. draw, no seedings. I, well, I'd probably keep the seeding in place for like the first and maybe the first one or two rounds. And then after that, it's just a free-for-all. Yep, I think that'd be I'm with you bad. on that. But they won't because of money, basically, will they? The, yep. the group stage makes loads of money for all, all the clubs and stuff, so they won't do that, unfortunately. Never but mind. I like the the ones you guys are talking about. That seems like a nice tournament to watch. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it'd be well better. Anyway, the European... I do like the um. Sorry, um, I do like this. I do like the idea of, and it's probably difficult, like calendar wise, with seasons all over Europe as well. Um, but the idea of 
playing games all at the end of the season appeals to me. Like if the Champions League stopped in March and then you finished the Premier League and La Liga and Bundesliga or whatever, and then in the middle of May, then you play the quarterfinal, semi-final, final, like a kind of mini World Cup kind of thing. Mm. Um, I definitely quite, I've liked that, like watching all the games, the, the end of the tournament play out in the space of a couple of weeks. I'm already stressed out thinking about how they're going to fit the uh, the Euros in next summer, well, followed by a season and then the World Cup. So I don't think we should uh, add any more <laughs> schedule chaos to the, the pile, should we really? Uh, the European club season isn't over completely because the Women's Champions League is still ongoing. On Tuesday night, we've got the first semi-final between Wolfsburg and Barcelona. And then on Wednesday, it's PSG v Lyon. Uh, given they've won the competition four years running, Lewis, do you think Lyon should be considered the favourites here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, even without um, Ada Hegerberg, who did an ACL last last year and started training again now, but not ready mm. to play, so they're without her at the moment. They are just the team in women's football um, from from back to front. And people, obviously, the the World Cup last summer got a lot of traction, um, and there's just huge names in every position: Wendy Renard and Lucy Bronze, Amandine Elmery. Um, Jennifer Marajan has been amazing in, yeah. in Hegelberg's absence and Nikita Paris and Eugenie Lesoma in the front line as well so you think they're missing the, the leading striker and probably over the last two or three years the leading name in women's football um, and there's still like three massive attacking players there um, like three of the best attacking players in the world so it's yeah easily easily the team the team to beat. Although I think you can see now, you, you look at a few of the other teams of PSG and Wolfsburg are the obvious ones. Um, the gap's closing. Uh, Leon are not as dominant as they were and maybe not quite as heavy favourites as they were a year ago and two years ago. Yeah, PSG are a pretty good team as well, aren't they? Could, could you see them maybe causing a surprise in the semi? Yeah, I think they could. I think if you look just a couple of weeks ago before the, the Women's Champions League sort of restarted, they played a French Cup final and uh, Lyon dominated, but PSG took them all the way to penalties. And uh, Lyon did win in the end, but they held on for a 0-0 draw. When they played in the league last season, uh, Lyon only won 1-0. So PSG, you couldn't say that they've got their number, um, mm. but they... Definitely, uh, like I say, the, that gap's been closed. Um, that 1-0 win in the league was the only, I think, the, the three points that separated them in the league and, and Leon went and won the league. So, yeah, I, I don't think... I think it's tricky for a team like PSG because in 95% of their games, they're the favourites and they're the ones that can dominate the ball and then suddenly they'll play Leon and they are the underdogs. Um, and to change your game plan to, to suit that is obviously tricky. But as I said, the gap is definitely a lot closer than it was a few years ago. Yeah. What about the other semi-final then, Joanna? There's two very good sides there in Wolfsburg and Barcelona. Who do you see uh, posing the most threat to Leon there? I think it, it's definitely going to be a good match, but I have to bet uh, on, the, on Wolfsburg because... Uh, Germany uh, has a way more mature, well-developed women's football. They've been investing in women's football for a longer period of time. I think for a few years in Europe, they were the only country with top clubs in, in a top mm. league. And uh, France has caught up, has catched up, uh, has caught up with 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 uh, Germany. And now we see uh, the big teams, the big clubs in in Spain also, you know, trying to follow the same example. And Real Madrid has just released a, a women's football team, uh, I think a year ago. 
and Barcelona and Atletico are more well-developed in, in Spain. And even though Barcelona has made really good investments and they have a really good squad with big, big, big players, but I think Wolfsburg has a team that has been playing together for a longer time, that has been successful for a longer time and has more tradition in the Champions League than Barcelona. So I have to say Wolfsburg has a little bit of an advantage there. Mm. So let's imagine it's Leon v Wolfsburg in the final, Lewis. That's been uh, Leon have really been Wolfsburg's bogey team in the Champions League, haven't they? Yeah, I think it's three years in a row that Wolfsburg have been knocked out by Leon. <laughs> um, so nobody's beaten them in the Champions League um, other than Leon for yeah for four years now. Yeah. Um, it's it's not who you want to face in a final where, when that's what the recent record is. Mm. But Wolfsburg, are, you know. If Leon are the the team in women's football, then Wolfsburg are a pretty close second. Uh, they I think it's now four titles in a row in Germany, three or four doubles in a row. Um, even though Bayern have have invested more into their women's side, Wolfsburg have managed to to keep that domination going. They're definitely the team that you'd you'd back to give Leon the best game and the run for their money, but. Yeah, when that record's counting against you, then <laughs> you don't really want to be playing a side with that hanging over you in a final, I don't think. Yeah. I always think records like that, like, you know, the law of average dictates that the reign of terror has got to end sometime, doesn't it? Yeah, and you think, like, if the, the first of those games was a few years ago now, and, like, probably half the team weren't even playing back then. Yeah. So, but somehow it still always feels like it weighs on people mentally, even if they weren't involved. Well, since our last podcast, Barcelona have appointed Ronald Koeman as their new manager. What are your thoughts on that one, Joanna? I have to say that's an easy and safe bet from Barcelona mm. because, uh, of course, he's a great coach, at least in the last work that he's done with the Dutch national team. Maybe not so much with Everton, um, although the, the first season was really good. But he's a former player, an idol, the guy that scored the winning goal for their first Champions League title. So even if he screws up, no one's going to hate him. Yeah. You know, And it can't really get much worse than it is right now. So I think it's more like a safe bet. It's a guy that is a former idol, but unlike Xavi, has more experience, has more international experience. And he's also a Dutch guy. So Barcelona is building up a new Dutch squad like they did with Van Gaal and uh, with Hinus Michels. So they're, whenever they're in trouble, they, they go to the Dutch, the Dutch players, the <laughs> Dutch coaches. So I think it's a safe bet. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how it plays out. I'm, I'm wondering whether his football is, is sort of suited to the football that Barcelona want to play. I mean, it's, it's not really Kike Setien football, is it? Oh, no, they're completely different. <laughs> I mean, Barcelona... Who made Barcelona was Rinus Mitchell and Cruyff, and they installed this whole offensive philosophy and style of playing, and that's what they are expecting with Ronald Koeman to be extremely offensive, to be very straightforward, like Kik Setien was not, I think, on what he wants from the players, on releasing maybe some of the idols, some of the stars that they have there. I mean, he's already apparently spoken to Vidal, which is, you know, has not been around for as much longer, but Suarez. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if he got rid of other players or at least put them in the bench. Like maybe, well, I, I personally like Busquets a lot. I think it's not st still time for him 
to go to yeah time for him to go to the bench but maybe Piquet or Jordi Alba so I think he has you know a green light from the directors he can do whatever he wants and I don't think he'll be afraid to do any changes yeah Podrick has, uh, has Mauricio Pochettino put the wrong phone number at the top of his CV or something why, why does he keep getting passed over for all these big jobs I don't get it I think that one you can understand the the Barcelona one I think actually the big two, like recently, you can you can see both clubs' reason why. Like Barcelona, he's got the the Espanol past, and he's kind of made a few comments before that. I think he did try to walk back a little bit when it became clear that Setien wasn't getting the job. I think he did kind of try to throw his name out there and say, "Well, maybe football's football. Never say never." But I don't think Barcelona were ever really going to consider him for that and then I think the only other big job recently was the UV one after mm. Sari left but I don't think they were going to give it to someone without any like link to the club or kind of homegrown Italian coach so I can understand why why he's been passed over for those two but it is interesting to see like the longer he kind of pretty much coming up it'll be a year soon since since he's been out of work you can imagine that he probably is quite eager now and getting itchy feet to get back into yeah. it but I mean I really I don't, don't know where it where it's going to be I mean who knows if, if Zidane starts the season badly or something I, but I don't know yeah it's weird well, because sort of the longer he's been out of the game the worse he sort of his reputation has got if you know what I mean like often reputations enhance in sort of the you know yeah. absence yeah. makes the heart grow fonder with him it's a bit it seems a bit different it's weird do you think there's a go on I think that when um, Niko Kovac was sacked from Bayern, he had just been sacked from Tottenham. Mm. So there was a lot of talk in the first few days about Pochettino. And of course, he doesn't really fit Bayern because Bayern has this German mentality and the, the German being German and speaking German is very, very important for them. So I think after he was turned down, it, it got things didn't get really look, didn't look good for him. Yeah. Probably good good idea that Bayern didn't get him in the end, isn't it? Really, but uh, do you think there's really a, a sort of dearth of top quality coaches in the game at the moment, Lewis, or a, a Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola kind of making everyone else look bad? Yeah, maybe they're just so good that um... Guardiola's making himself look bad at the moment. But we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a man who's been listening to Alexander Zinchenko's wife. Um, yeah, I think uh, they've they've raised the bar to a new level um obviously we can we can probably talk about Hansi Flick living up to that bar um probably you can't put him sort of there with them yet but he's at least um in his work so far lived up to that level and then aside from that you've got I'd say Julian Nagelsmann has a huge future these things just come and go don't they um and I think Guardiola and Klopp have come in over the past well each of them about 10 years or so now and they've just set a new level of of what you can aspire to but these these things come and go new coaches arrive i think nagasman will be the the next one that we sort of talk about for a very very long time and tuchel has got a huge future i'm convinced of that so i don't know i don't think there are not many good coaches. I just think there are two or three spectacular coaches that means we maybe look at others a little bit worse. Yeah. Maybe Andrea Perlo is the next big thing. Who knows? <laughs> um, there's a lot of talk about Lionel Messi as always, Joanna. Is there actually a chance that he's going to leave Barcelona? I don't really think so. 
I mean, Messi is the kind of guy that quit an Argentinian national team after they lost their third final in a row. So, and then they come back a few year, a few weeks afterwards. So I think he has this personality that he doesn't really know how to lose, or of course he doesn't like to lose, nobody does, but he doesn't take the defeat so well. And there's all this, this whole talk about him not being happy in Barcelona, but Barcelona, let's face the truth, Barcelona will provide him anything for him to be happy. <laughs> Either it's money or it's the coach that he wants or it's the team partner, the, the striker inside next to him that he wants. If he says Barcelona will give it to him. So I think he's just complaining. And of course, it's normal after you, you know, you concede four, eight goals for Bayern Munich mm. in, a, in a Champions League game and the way that it was. But at the end, Koeman will speak to him, will convince him to stay. And so will all the, you know, the Barcelona financial director and everyone else. Mm. I had to laugh yesterday when I read that Manchester City are doing the calculations to work out how much would it cost to sign Lionel Messi. <laughs> An awful lot, I imagine. <laughs> uh, one club who really have done their calculations, though, is Chelsea. They've got Hakim Ziyech, Timo Werner already in the bag. They're close to signing Ben Chilwell, and he could soon be joined by Kai Havertz and Thiago Silva. Where's all this money coming from, Lewis? What's going on? I think we know who this money is coming from. <laughs> um, I, think, I think that's all there is to it. Chelsea yeah. had a tr- they had a transfer ban, obviously, last year, but there's no way they saved this amount of money um, to spend this summer. Uh, financial fair play rules have been relaxed, apparently, for mm. a, is it a year or two now. Maybe that will even be extended, depending on how long the, the whole pandemic situation goes on. So I think Roman's <coughs> put his hand in his pocket again. Roman's smashed open his piggy bank, has he? Yeah? He has, yeah. <laughs> Assuming they do get all those players, is that going to be enough for them to challenge the likes of Liverpool and Manchester City for the title next season, Podrick? I don't think so. Those two are just too good. They're just streets ahead. And for all that they've signed all these players, a lot of them have the same thing in common, that they're all quite good attacking players. And he's got a job Mm. on his hands fitting all of those guys in. But you look defensively, I think Thiago Silva would actually be a great signing. Yeah, Uh, A bit of experience, stuff at the back. But it's still quite a shaky defence. And you don't know. I mean, for all that, I think he'll be a good signing and lend really good experience you don't know if it will quite pan out that way Chilwell's decent defender as well but I think they could have probably got better left back than that for a lot cheaper if they'd maybe widened the net a little bit I think Kepa's still a problem as well and then even maybe in the centre of the park you doesn't not quite sure what Lampard's going to do there behind all these guys behind like Ziyech and Pulisic and uh, Kai Havertz so I think there's still a long way for them to go before they can even think about that. Although, when you've spent this amount of money, I think there will be expectations that they should probably be challenging. Yeah, I think did what last season they um, they conceded the the most goals they've conceded in a season since '97, um, which is unbelievable when you think of it. Just how long that is, um, and that's a good seven years before Abramovich arrived at the club as well, before they mm-hmm. were competing for titles and things like that. Uh, to me, that a record like that speaks to problems that exist in the coaching staff and with Frank Lampard just as much as that it's an issue maybe with uh, with who's actually playing. Because there are plenty of Premier League clubs that don't have half the talent of Chelsea that didn't concede as many goals last yeah. season. Yeah, I totally forgot about the goalkeeping situation as well. Surely they've not got enough money left over to sort that out after all this, but... 
Yeah, we'll see. Uh, across London, it looks like Arsenal are close to signing 22-year-old Brazilian defender Gabriel from Lille. Uh, Joanna, firstly, can you tell us how to pronounce his name, please? Well, you did pretty well. But the, yeah. but the second name? The second one. Oh, then I, I'm not really sure. Really? <laughs> I think, I, th I think, did I, I'm going to give it a go. I've listened to an Arsenal podcast the other day um, with somebody who's, whose wife is Brazilian. And he said it was something like Magalhães. Okay. Magalhães. That sounds about right to me. Yeah, we'll go with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. as close as yeah. any Englishman's going to get. That's the official pronunciation. Yeah. You heard it's it It's because that little accent that you have on top of the A, it's something that only Brazilians and Portuguese can pronounce. So don't <laughs> be shy about it. It's okay. We're just going to call him Gabriel, aren't yeah, we? Please. Yeah, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In Brazil, you can just call people either their nickname or their first name. So nobody will call him Magalhães. So it's okay. <laughs> Fair enough. And Joanna, secondly, how good is he? Uh, I think he's pretty good, but he's also really young and he hasn't really proved himself. I mean, of course, you know, he plays in one of the European top five leagues and Lille has done really well the, the past few seasons in France. But I think that um, he's still, he's mo way more regular and way more, let's say, stable, playing really well or very well the all matches instead of ups and downs like Diego Carlos, for example. So I, he, I think he has a great, great future. He's still very young, 22. He hasn't played in the Brazilian national team, but he's played in the under 20. Although he didn't really have a lot of opportunities there, he was more on the bench. So I think that this last few years in, in Europe, he was, if I'm not mistaken, he was loaned out to Dinamo Kiev for one or two years, has made him uh, mature a lot as a, as a player so i think it's time for him to move on to either a bigger team or a bigger league which would be the case but most importantly i think for arsenal that's a good choice because let's face it arsenal has not inv invested in good defenders in i don't know how long so if they are hiring someone that is young that can still develop and learn a lot and shows regularity, which is missing in, in Arsenal, especially, then I think that's a great choice for them. Yeah, you must be pretty excited about this, Lewis. It feels like a pretty big big coup for Arsenal, given that lots of other clubs are interested in him. Yeah, I think when you consider the fee as well, like he's obviously being signed as a as a player that they think they're going to get a lot of like quite quickly as well, not just, not just sit on the bench for a year and sort of get used to the Premier League. I think we'll probably see him quite a lot this season. Mm. Um, yeah, it is, it's exciting. I think, uh, obviously, signed uh, Pablo Marie from, mm. from Flamengo last year as well. So there's a bunch of new defenders. William Saliba was signed last summer, mm. um, but has now arrived at the club after an extra year on loan with the St Etienne. He's only 19 and looks like one of the best young defenders in the world. So, yeah, I think we'll probably still see a lot of the first half of the season, at least, I think we'll probably see a lot of uh, David Luiz and Scott Mustafi uh, if he's still at the club, while Saliba and, and Gabriel get a bit more used to to England and, and the Premier League. Um, I think out of all the European leagues, it's probably the biggest jump to go, to go from France to England, uh, just in terms of the opposition you face week in, week out. Mm. Um so I think we will. I don't think anyone should be expecting to see Gabriel and, and Saliba playing every week. I think we'll see a lot of David Luiz and Mustafi for the next six months or so, and then Gabriel and Saliba will, will work their way into the team. And probably a year or two from now, they'll be the, the first choice. I think that's the most exciting thing is that to have a, a 22 year old and 19 year old centre halves. Um, is if everything works out and they both 
they both fit in and they both work well together, then you can have a partnership for the next eight or nine or mm. ten years. Yeah, yeah. Some forward planning from Arsenal at last. Who would have thought it? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, better late than never. <laughs> um, and what, what's the latest on Jaden Sancho? Is he is he really going to stay at Dortmund? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think if you obviously looked at the English media and the transfer rumour hungry media um, from around everywhere, Europe, Germany included. Uh, during the summer, there was a bit like a little bit of ridicule that Dortmund had set this early August deadline for United. Um, but if you look at the, the local media near Dortmund, guys like De Vesten and Rönnachristen, they were really consistent with their message mm. um, from March, April onwards. Is There is a price for Jadon Sancho. We know that that was 120 million euros. And there was a day that it had to be paid by, and that day was before Dortmund started pre-season. And it felt like Man United thought that was a bit of a joke. Or... <laughs> yeah. I don't know why Man United apparently seemed to think that the price might come down, like Dortmund <laughs> would panic. if it's, I don't know why the price would go down on deadline day when Dortmund then can't replace him. Um, and you think yeah. they'd have learned from Bruno Lewis, eh? Was it last summer? Yeah, they ended up Harry pretty Maguire. much paying the same fee for just... Harry Maguire as well. They, they, yeah. Um, Dortmund were really clear from the beginning, and the lo- the really reliable local media said it from the very beginning. If you he sure starts preseason, are you sure they didn't send out a fax that arrived a bit later? Because <laughs> <laughs> apparently think, that's how they do business there. It sounded like they sent out a fax with the with a fee that was half of Dortmund's asking price, as if there was some sort of negotiation. I saw Man United fans, and I've seen journalists as well say that Man United felt like Dortmund were a bit unfair. Uh, because they weren't willing to negotiate. It's like, well, he's got a contract with Dortmund, so Dortmund are the ones that get to set a price. And mm. then, yeah, um, I, I thought it was all very, it just seemed very unprofessional the way that United handled it. And like, they didn't really understand the way that Dortmund do business. A lot of people point to when Usman Dembele went to Barcelona a few years ago um, and Dortmund insisting that they weren't going to sell him that summer. But even though he went on strike, they still got the exact asking price that they wanted from Barcelona. Um, Jane Sancho was never going to leave if Man United didn't offer 120 million euros. Um, the the real bombshell that Michael Zork dropped, obviously, was that he'd actually signed an extra one year on his contract 12 oh, yeah. months ago, <laughs> um, which I found particularly hilarious when lots of people were tweeting, pretending they, they know the details of all these deals and these <laughs> talks, but apparently not one single person in the world knew that his contract ex- was extended for another <laughs> year. Um Obviously, now, if Man United came up next week and offered Dortmund above the 120 million asking price, I think he'd be sold. Mm. If they came in and offered 140 million, then I think Dortmund would turn around and just be like, well, we've done you here. They've pulled the wool over their eyes. They've got even more than what was already a huge asking price, and they'd sell him um, with still almost a, what, three or four weeks to go to the, the Bundesliga season starts, and they can replace him and that sort of thing. Um but yeah, with the extra year on the contract especially, they're in no rush to sell him. And who knows what things look like financially next year. There's a, obviously the likes of Liverpool and Real Madrid and Barcelona aren't willing already to spend €120 million Euros this summer. But maybe they will in 12 months. And I think Man United have possibly made a huge, huge mistake not signing him now for whatever price mm. when they were the only ones in the race. All it needs I is Ed Woodward, Ed Woodward to ring him up and say, do you know who I am? I'm the CEO of Manchester United. <laughs> I am very rich. 
I have a hard time understanding paying 80 million for Maguire and refusing to pay 120 for Jadon Sancho. Bonkers, yeah. It doesn't make any yeah. sense. Yeah. And I feel like when United have done deals like the, that Maguire deal before, it's like you can't exactly go into a negotiation a year later and pretend you don't have 120 million. And if you spend 80 million on Harry Maguire, you've obviously got an outrageous amount of money. <laughs> Um, yeah, but this whole idea that Dortmund had no right to set an asking price of like, well, who does he have a contract with? Mm. Yeah, it's a very bad game of poker being played by United here, it seems, isn't it, really? I'd love to play poker with him. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all we have time for this week, I'm afraid. Thanks, as always, for listening, and thank you to Lewis, Joanna and Podrick for joining me. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email us on podcast at onefootball.com or tweet us at onefootball. Take care, and we'll catch you next time. I love you.